Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to News Talk's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. My thanks to everyone who got in contact about last week's programme. As always, you can listen back on our website at newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. And you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we'll be asking how did the COVID-19 pandemic catch such a grip on society worldwide, infecting hundreds of thousands of people across the globe and killing ever-increasing numbers? The World Health Organization said recently that the pandemic caused by the virus is continuing to accelerate. Well, joining me to tell us a little bit more about COVID-19 is Professor of the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College Dublin, Kingston Mills. Kingston, what exactly is COVID-19? Okay, so the, the, this virus, the special name is SARS um, coronavirus 2, um, and the disease it call, causes is, is COVID 19. Um, and the reason it got the name coronavirus 2 is because SARS coronavirus 2 is because originally there was a virus that caused the disease SARS, which was a number of years ago. And this virus is, is quite similar to that one, and it's of the same family of coronavirus. That's how it got, it got the name. And then they put the two to the end of it to distinguish from the original SARS virus. What do we know about it at this stage? In terms of um, well, we, th- 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 there's some um, suggestion that it came out of uh, that it was it was it was originally um, in bats and uh, or other animals, live animals in the markets in China. So uh, there are a lot of live animal markets I- in China, and um, they kill the animals in the markets and take them home to 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 eat them. So that's it's been a course, a source of problems in the past. With, for example, avian influenza came out of, out of um, these markets in China. So that's the origin of it. And um, that, but it's not been confirmed for certain that it did come from bats. There, there are other species there that could have come from as well. The coronavirus is in fact lots of animal species as, as, as well as humans. It's when it's, it crosses the barrier, the host barrier from from one animal to another, it, it can become more pathogenic in the, in the second host. And that seems to be what happened here, that the, the virus transmitted into humans. And then it's, sometimes it doesn't spread from human to human, as the case with certain flu viruses that, that came from animals. But this particular one does spread from human to humans, and it spreads very effectively from human to human. That's why we have such a problem. Um, so it, it's quite effective at spreading. Um, about two point, an average in the Chinese study showed that about 2.5 people um, get infected from every contact. So that's why we need the measures for um, isolation of people who are infected. If mm. you can get that number below one, you can you can significantly slow the spread. But if you don't, um, if you don't have the, the sort of containment type measures we have in place, instead of in, in the context of people staying at home, then, you know, the virus is just going to multiply very rapidly. And how, Kingston, I mean, this just seems to sort of have, we only really seem to know about this since about just kind of late last December when it first emerged in China. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this this event happened in in two in two in 2019 in China. I mean, there was a lot, and you know, I think a lot of us probably ignored it initially um, because it wasn't an issue that was affecting Europe, but it was certainly in China for several months before it, it came to Europe. Um, and then, of course, when it did come to Europe, uh, we had it initially, initially, uh, in, in serious numbers, and most people were in denial here that 
it was going to be a, an issue in the rest of Europe. And then slowly people accepted that it was going to spread across the whole of Europe and, in fact, the whole of the world. And that's exactly what has happened and will happen. What makes this so deadly by comparison to other diseases? Well, in, in fact, it's not particularly deadly. I mean, I'm, I'm not being flippant about it, but um, the case fatality is somewhere between 1% and, and 4%, but in fact, it's probably much less than 1%. Um, uh, the, the, there was a paper published or online today from a group in Oxford that suggests in the UK there may be um, huge numbers of people that have been infected with the virus that haven't been diagnosed. And this is something that um, has been gaining momentum, the idea that there are what are called asymptomatic carriers. These are people that are infected and don't show symptoms but can pass it on to others. And that's part of the problem um, with the strategies for testing and isolating. It's impossible to identify asymptomatic. You'd have to test everybody who was in contact with every person who had it um, uh, to identify those people. So what is happening now in the UK and probably will follow here is that there's a second type of test that's been used to um, that can be done much quicker than the current test. The current test is a, is, is a molecular test, PCR. It, 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 it amplifies bits of the, the virus genome in the, in the lab, but it's quite a labour-intensive and um, difficult test to perform and okay. takes, uh, you know, a lot of time. So, so um, and, and, and there's a huge bottleneck in testing, but there's another assay that involves measuring the immune response to the virus, the antibodies, and it's a much quicker test. It can be done in 10 minutes, but it, the, unfortunately, it doesn't detect um, the, the virus, it only detects the immune response to it, and that only occurs seven to, days after, seven to ten days after the infection has started. So it can confirm that somebody was infected, and you know, if they've recovered from symptoms, they can then go back to work. So I think this is going to be a useful tool in, in the next few year, weeks if we, if we get it in place here. Okay, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Professor Kingston Mills of the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College Dublin. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, joining us now, Dr. Gabriel Fitzpatrick, who is a medical epidemiologist and medical director of Trinity Clinics. Gabriel, my thanks to you for joining us today. Thank you. Can I just ask you, first of all, you've worked yourself in a previous setting with um, various different other countries in, in terms of trying to deal with some of these types of outbreaks in, in previous times. If you can just give us an insight into your own background, first of all, Gabriel. I've worked in many outbreak settings across the world, uh, dengue outbreaks in Peru, cholera outbreaks in Central Africa, um, Ebola outbreaks in West Africa, and now uh, working in uh, clinics in Dublin during this current outbreak. But what I would say is they're all mostly the same. However, they differ in scale. Now, and why I say that is, all outbreaks, no matter what the type of virus causing uh, the outbreak is, they've got what we call a fear slope and a I told you so slope. So how, how I would break that out down is as the number of cases increase each day, um, that's what we call the fear slope because everybody's thinking and everybody's asking how many cases are we going to have tomorrow and each day there's more cases than there were the day mm. prior. So the slope's going up and it's called the fear slope and the second part of that is the when the numbers start dropping. The 
I told you phase of the slope. And that's where you'll have various people and experts telling you, well, we knew there would only be this many cases. We knew it would stop at this stage. So the fear slope and the I told you so slope occur across the world with every outbreak. Um, But it's very important. And I think sometimes we miss this when we're in this fear slope part of the outbreak is that for this particular bug, this particular virus, the vast majority of people have no symptoms or very minor symptoms. And that's something I feel gets lost when when we read about what's happening online and in the papers. The vast majority have very little, if any, symptoms. Now, that's not to make little of this virus. Obviously, if you're elderly, you've got comorbidities, you've got lung disease, you've got heart disease. This is more serious. And that's why we're seeing all these interventions take place at the moment, because the country is coming together to make these interventions to protect the most vulnerable in our society. And the most vulnerable in this case are elderly and those with um, medical comorbidities, just like we do with measles, for example. We all get vaccinated so that we can protect the most vulnerable. And that's where personal responsibility, social responsibility comes in. And that's where we're all getting together to help the most vulnerable. So you may be here in your early 30s and that's why you have to be careful. You have to do the basic things that everybody keeps hearing about. We do have to um, take personal responsibility for our actions. But that being said, cases are going to increase. You know, a lot of public health at the end of the day is common sense. So you may have lots of public health experts coming in and epidemiologists and so forth. But most of it is common sense. Most of us know that over the next few weeks the number of cases are going to increase. Whether it's the thousands or the tens of thousands, nobody can answer that, but they will increase. Our main objective here at the moment is that people get behind the measures that the government have been advising us to do so to make sure too many cases don't occur in too short of a period to overwhelm our health system. But that being said, this is not... When I say the majority of people won't get any symptoms, the majority of our health system will not fall apart. The real issue for our health system are those precious ICU beds. So say if you have 10,000 cases of uh, coronavirus, but 200 people need an ICU bed over a two-week period, we've only got about 250 to 300 ICU beds in the country. So that puts a particular stress, a very difficult stress, on that small part of the health okay, service. So it's more a case of maybe if you have a, you know, um, a, a serious car accident or a fatal shooting or something like that, and that person requires the ICU bed on top of the coronavirus outbreak. Exactly. So we've got this, and you mentioned it there, this thing you hear referred to as the mitigation phase. And that's where tough decisions have to be made. There's a very limited number of ICU beds. Um, if a 20-year-old in a car accident comes in, a severe car accident and needs Uh, support to breathe that's an ICU bed and then there may be 90 year olds with comorbidities who've got coronavirus you know a question will be have to be asked who gets the bed in that in that uh, particular instance and that's the mitigation phase Mm. that's a difficult phase but that's not going to make our health service fall apart and also we also have to remember we're coming into summer it's spring summer there's a hope that this virus will exhibit or show seasonality. Lots of viruses, respiratory syncytial virus, metanumavirus, parainfluenza virus, a long list of them die out during the summer. Okay, so coming into this phase of springtime, summertime, we may be lucky. It may be an opportunity where it may 
dip in numbers. Is, is that dependent on the weather conditions? Well, when we talk about seasonality, we think about influenza seasonality, mm. where it dips during the summer. And nobody really understands why influenza drops during the summertime. People will say it's due in part to the weather conditions, due in part to our immune system, how we respond in the summertime versus the wintertime. But there are masses amount, masses of amounts of scientific late literature looking at the seasonality of uh, respiratory viral infections, but nobody can give a straight answer. Um, in your own experience, as you mentioned, Gabriel, at the outset, I mean, you, you've worked in various different outbreak settings across the world, Peru, Chad, uh, Sierra Leone as well, in, in terms of the Ebola outbreak. But it, it's a personal question, but what's your assessment of how the Irish government, Department of Health, Health Service Executive, how are they doing in terms of uh, dealing and responding to this? Yeah, I would, So you must remember the Department of Public Health is made up of 60 doctors and then a backup team, a small backup team of nurses and admin staff. So it's a very small team in a in a in a health service of over 100,000 staff. Um so given the numbers of people they have, they're doing, you know, they're doing what they can do, you know, what can be expected of them. Um but I would just I I know I know I've said this before, but I would keep making the point that because um, in our clinics at the moment, um, we're getting repeated calls every day from concerned patients. Mm. I'm worried about coronavirus. I'm 79. I'm living at home. I've got no symptoms, but I'm worried about coronavirus. So we're spending a big chunk of our day. Our doctors and nurses in our clinics are spending a big chunk of their day reassuring well people that they don't have coronavirus at the moment. So... You know, the biggest thing I would I would like to say from this short interview is that this is a you know, it is a serious uh, situation, but we must remember the vast majority of us will not get symptoms and will be okay if we get the mild symptoms. We're doing what we're doing to protect the most vulnerable in our society. And most people do that happily. And a point about you will hear about mortality rates being mentioned. How many people die? from this virus and you'll hear mentions of up to 3% of people who are infected but we always have to remember the bottom line is we don't know how many people have been infected at this point in time so we don't know the true number of deaths as a percentage of the total number of cases so there could be a lot more people out there who've had the virus and have absolutely no symptoms whatsoever but they're not counted in the overall numbers Mm. so the death rate death rate appears higher than it actually is. And that's true of every virus. Okay, so this isn't something um, specific Mm. to coronavirus. It's true to every virus. And what I would say is, in time, we will have blood tests that we can take of people, a random population of people, and we can see if they were ever exposed to the coronavirus. Because the test you're getting at the moment, if you're going to get a coronavirus test, will just show whether you have the virus at this point in time. But if somebody had the virus and recovered and you do the test, the test will be negative. Mm. Can you just clarify something for me? Um, I mean, if I'm tested today, I could be totally sound. But if I'm tested tomorrow, that might not necessarily be the case. Exactly. So when if, if somebody gets infected with the virus, the virus starts multiplying in their body. But during that time that it's multiplying, called the incubation period, the test won't pick it up. 
okay but then when it multiplies part uh, past a certain period and it gets to a certain number of virus particles in your body then the test can pick it up and then when you clear those virus particles the test will say you're negative but a different type of test called a blood test also known as the serology test will be able to tell if you've had past exposure to the virus and when we know that we'll know what mm proportion of the population have been exposed to it previously and when we know that it's almost certain that the actual death rate will be a lot lower because the number of deaths over the number of cases in that case will give you a lower death rate. Dr Gabriel Fitzpatrick who is a medical epidemiologist and medical director of Trinity Clinics my thanks to you for joining us here on Between the Lines today. Do stay with us we'll have more in just a few moments. Between the Lines on Newstalk you're welcome back to today's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're continuing our discussion asking how did the COVID-19 pandemic catch such a grip on society worldwide? It started in China before quickly moving to Italy and joining me to discuss from Rome today, the Rome-based journalist Paddy Agnew. Paddy, just take us back to what it was first like when you heard of the news of the COVID-19 outbreak in Italy. Well, everybody in Italy was obviously aware that it was happening in China, but most people thought, well, that's not going to be, uh, you know, they'll contain it there, it won't get to us. Uh, uh, the first that it actually really struck home to Italian public opinion was Friday the uh, 21st of February, when the uh, first person, a 78-year-old man called Alberto Trevisan, uh, from the small village of Vo in the Veneto, uh, near Padova, uh, when he died. And... Uh, from that moment on, then, it, it was a, a major issue. I would say, though, I mean, a, a number of us uh, were worried about this from immediately. I know I, I was traveling to Spain at the end of January, and even then I was wearing a mask on, on the train, on the plane, because uh, one knows that these things are not easy to contain, and this one has turned out to be utterly virulent. It's interesting to hear, Paddy, when you talk about the fact that, I mean, in Italy it first really emerged back in, what you said, the 21st of February. I mean, so much has happened. And I think one of the things that has really caught people is the speed at which this has actually um, caught a grip across the world. If you just look at it, Italy's been the leader in the speed race here. I mean, the cases have tripled. Uh, and the number of dead have quadrupled in uh, 10 days. Uh, And there's no sign of the... uh, I'm not sure... Uh, that we've got to the peak of this thing in Italy at all. And Paddy, take us back to what it was like in Italy when this first started, when you talked about that first death that was reported and the the government's response there at the time. The big problem about the coronavirus, COVID-19 getting into Italy, is it came into Italy most probably from two sources, uh, by the uh, members of the Chinese community returning back to Italy after the Chinese New Year celebrations. And also... It appears to have come in from Germany as well via somebody who had been in contact with the Chinese community. Got into Italy in mid-January, if not early January, and it circled around in Italy for at least a month, if not longer, before uh, that man died, before it was actually identified that that the coronavirus was here. And and that has meant that the the, uh, Italian government and every Italian health authority of the land has been playing catch-up ever since because the uh, virus has always been ahead of them. So, I mean, the Italian government, to answer your question, the Italian government's reactions to it were uh, warn people not to move about too much initially, then to bring in a decree in which they imposed uh, a lockdown on the 
area, which in northeastern Italy, northeastern Italy uh, Lombard uh, and Veneto, essentially, which is the epicenter of the epidemic in Italy, that was uh, imposed for about a week. And a week later, then uh, the entire country was put under lockdown. But it hasn't stopped the, the, obviously, it hasn't stopped the spread of the virus. Were they just too slow, though, Paddy? I mean, I know you talked about some of the restrictive measures that they introduced, but were they too slow to respond to this initially? I think they were pretty quick responding once they realised that, uh, once they realised that it was here. The problem was that it wasn't picked up in January because doctors, GPs, hospital doctors looking at people with uh, coronavirus thought that they just got a very bad pneumonia. It took some while for somebody to realise that, well, actually, this isn't pneumonia. This is something much more virulent. And, you know, in, in that same context, it's, it's interesting that I was in a press conference the other day with the mayor of Bergamo. Bergamo, at this point, is the hardest hit town in Italy. Mm. Uh, and he was saying uh, people, and indeed the Italian Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, repeated it in Parliament yesterday, other countries should learn from Italy's mistakes. Italy's mistakes were they didn't get onto it early enough, but as soon as they did uh, get onto it, uh, they realised you had to do, take fairly draconian measures. And one of them, above all, is, is lockdown being locked down. I mean, let me illustrate that for you a little bit. Giorgio Gori, the mayor of Bergamo, uh, said to us yesterday that he looks at what's going on in certain countries and he can't believe how what uh, how the, the regimes are dealing with uh, the problem. He, he has two daughters who are studying uh, in England. And he rang them up when he saw that the Johnson government was allowing a quarter of a million people to gather at Cheltenham for a week of racing. He rang his daughters up and he said, come home, you'll be safer here in Bergamo. Uh, than you would be in a country that's been ruled like that. That is just mad. And 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 so if you say where the Italians slow, I wouldn't say they were too slow. I'd say though that uh, the UK government has been outrageously slow, and I'd say the American government, the US government of Trump, has been equally. It's not just they've been slow, but they have uh, given contradictory messages. Is this an alarm or is it not an alarm? The answer is it's an alarm. So you're saying it's it's not that the government in Italy were too slow to react, but probably sl- too slow to, or, or not quick enough to identify the problem in the first place. Exactly, exactly. That's absolutely true. In terms now of where you, things are at at the moment, and I know, look, they're they're changing on an um, on a daily basis, Paddy. But I mean, the entire country has been in lockdown for how many weeks? Well, we've been in lockdown now since the eighth of March. And have you any indication as to how long that's likely to continue? No, none of us have. Who has? Nobody's mm. getting. I mean, that's the sixty-four million dollar question. How long is this going to go on? Another question on the same on the same lines, Andrea, is: it, Will will the COVID nineteen will it have the same devastating impact uh, wherever it goes as it's had in Italy? From the example of Spain, it would appear to be. If you look at the the curve of Spanish infections, they're even they're, they haven't got the same numbers yet as Italy, but they're ahead in terms of. Uh, the historical curve uh, and will it be the same for Ireland will it be the same for the UK or is there some particular climatic meteorological reason environmental reason related to the Mediterranean Spain and Italy have been very hard hit nobody can answer that yet you know, when you look at the number of infections or the number of, of, of infected cases say for instance in the likes of Spain and Italy I heard the point made being made during the week that they're both very much outside Societies, yeah. you know what I mean, where, where people tend not to yeah. live in their apartment or their house. Yeah. They actually live in the outside, you know, in, in 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 the outside environment, outdoors. I mean, would that be part of the reason for the the rate of spread in both those countries? 
Well, I, I'm not sure if I should say too much about Spain. I, I'm not living in Spain. I haven't followed it as closely there. But, but the question and those questions in relation to Italy, there's some aspects of Italy that make it uh, made it particularly prone. You know, uh, and it's, the Italian family unit is still very strong. If you go around any city centre and you and you look at any residential area in the city in Italy, you look at the the doorbells. And on the big doorbells, you'll be amazed to find maybe uh, 10 families named De Rossi uh, in the same apartment building. Because cause it's all the one family. Families li- often live together. And even if it's just one family name on the, on, on the doorbell, you may well find in, in that particular family unit that there'll be uh, at least three generations of grandparents, parents and children and grandchildren. And that has made the spread of the thing in Italy particularly virulent in, in as much as I think uh, everybody understands at this case that uh, at this stage that people over 60, over 65 are much more at risk and people over 70 are more, even more at risk and over 80 even more again. And uh, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of old people in Italy. Like uh, Italy's mm. got a 20%, uh, 22% of the Italian population is over 65. That compares with 13% in Ireland. Uh, so uh, obviously Italy, that, that to some extent, I think that's part of the reason the, the disease has spread so so quickly. Let me just tell you one little story that illustrates this. Uh, the medics and a number of the uh, specialists in Bergamo, and particularly in the Giovanni Ventitreis in the hospital in Bergamo, which is uh, at the front of this war, they are convinced that the European Champions League game between Atalanta and Valencia. Atalanta is the club which comes from Bergamo. That that game, which was played on February the 19th, two days before the first person had died in Italy, that that game uh, has acted as a a biological bomb, is what they call it, a biological bomb, because what happened there was 40,000 people from Bergamo, that's a third of the city, it's 120,000 people live in Bergamo. They went down to Milan for for, uh, that game that was being played in Milan, not in Bergamo. They went down to Milan and they went down on buses, trains, cars, all of them together. They spent six hours together. They came back and they came back. And a lot of them, unknown to them, uh, were probably carriers at the time. They spread it around themselves, Gudo. They all came back and then brought it home to their grandparents. And it's not exactly three weeks after that, uh, there was a fierce spike in the numbers in Bergamo. And you had 333 people dying in the one week in Bergamo. Uh, whereas in the same week in 2019, uh, you'd had only 23 deaths. So, the, the, and the, mm. the problem there, obviously, is that... Uh, the community uh, transmission. People, yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's, but it's, it's, it's the business of the carriers, the vectors. Of the, people uh, don't know they've got it. And also, in this case, that was the 19th of February, as I said, two days before the first person had died. There wasn't the same sense of alarm. I know. And Italians certainly, uh, since then, haven't allowed big matches like that to take place. And they wouldn't have allowed that uh, had they known even then. Which is why, I go back to my point about uh, the British authorities, the Italians look at, uh, looked at the England-Wales game on Cheltenham and they just shook their heads in disbelief. What's been the response from the Italian people um, to the government's reaction to all of this there, Paddy? 
because I know oh. here for instance at home like you know there's sort of a mixed view some people are very happy with the government's um, response here in Ireland in terms of working off the um, the Department of Health the, the, the crisis management team's recommendations in terms of the kind of measures that have been introduced other people would like to see you know more measures more stringent measures brought in similar to China in an effort to try and prevent this you know spreading any further yeah yeah uh, the answer to the the, the answer is uh, Italians, by and large, have been very good. There obviously, and there always will be a small minority of people who who, who don't give a damn, or won't pay, uh, uh, live by the restrictions. But by and large, people have been very good. And you know, the, the, we're talking about a minority who, who simply don't want to take it seriously. But what I would say is that um, Italians and all the Italian authorities have long since decided there's only one thing to do, and that is lockdown. A lockdown is lockdown and you have no choice. A lockdown actually means, you know, you go you go back home to wherever you live, you pull the door behind you and you don't go out or maybe you go out once every two weeks. That's what, that's it's what you should be doing. I mean, everybody has a different way of dealing with it. But I know, I know a lot of people who, when they go out on their, uh, their one, once every 10 days out to go shopping, uh, you know, they wear a special old raincoat yeah. they went to the supermarket, they wear gloves and they wear masks. Uh, so they wear two pairs of gloves in home cases and wear masks. And uh, they get back when they come home. Uh, they wa- they obviously throw away the gloves and the mask and they wash uh, uh, wash the old raincoat. And then the um, my wife sponges down everything that she, that she buys. Uh, she sponges down with disinfectant. You know, that's the the level that the Italian government doesn't think mm. that's exaggerated. They say, okay. That's what you got to do. We've seen some really just harrowing photographs, Paddy. You know, in in recent yeah. days of um, yeah. fatalities from Italy, people people being moved nearly in army trucks because there isn't space in yeah. in the crematoriums. Yeah. I mean, it's just devastating to see it. No, I mean it is. It, um, we've all seen those uh, pictures. Uh, and Ber- those pictures came from Bergamo again. And uh, in Bergamo, they suddenly have been so overwhelmed that uh, they've had to line up the bodies in the church. Now, uh, one of the restrictions um, employed, um, imposed by the lockdown is that there are no church services. There are no, no masses being said, so churches are empty. Uh, and uh, in the cathedral in Bergamo, they've just uh, used the actual uh, basilica itself as a place to lay out the bodies. Um, and they're obviously they're going up and down, uh, trying to disinfect the area as much as possible. But the uh, local monsignore said, "We'll we'll keep them here, and I will I will watch over them." So that, because the, the horrible thing about this is that you know people die on their own, couples die mm-hmm. in the same hospital in the same ward on their own almost, and there's absolutely no question of any family members being there, uh, and then. Uh, the bodies are quickly taken away. Uh, I, I headed off to, in the case of Bergamo, generally to a crematorium uh, cr- uh, to be cremated. And um, the, the the priest in question, I'm talking about, he he said, "Well, at least I'll provide some sort of spiritual uh, presence." Just finally, Paddy, like I mean, how will the economy, the country, um, the government, uh, the people of Italy rally after all of this? Yeah, that's. Sixty-four million dollar question number two. I mean, it, it is going. To, this uh, COVID nineteen uh, is, is a game changer, a life changer, and it's going to have 
a devastating impact on the world economy, let alone the Italian economy. The Italian economy will suffer particularly badly because it was already in recession uh, before COVID-19 came along and it's still going to take a terrible hit. Um, and in the context of a worldwide economy that will be in severe shock, uh, we're heading to some very grim times and people are going to have to uh, accept a lot of the basic economic realities and financial realities that they've taken for granted for most of their lives. Uh, the whole quality of our lives will have to step down a couple of notches. Uh, and, you know, my parents' generation grew up, the business of people lived through the war, learning to uh, make do with what they had and waste not, want not. That's, that's going to become... That's going to become the the basic the basic norm. Paddy Agnew, Times-based journalist and columnist with the Sunday Independent. My thanks to you for joining us here on Between the Lines today. Do stay with us. We'll have more in just a few moments. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're continuing our discussion, looking back at the COVID-19 pandemic and how it started and asking how did we get to where we are today. Well, joining me now on the line is um, Susan Mitchell, the health editor with the Sunday Business Post. Susan, um, I want to look at it maybe from an Irish perspective, first of all. Just, sure. I mean, this is something, it's, it's, COVID-19 is relatively new here in Ireland from when we first heard about it. Yeah, it is. Believe it or not, um, our first case was uh, just four weeks ago, at the, or the first confirmed case was uh, just four weeks ago, um, and that was announced at the very end, the last weekend in February. Um, it won't, you know, it, it wasn't a huge surprise that confirmed cases emerged here because obviously we had all seen. And what was happening over in northern Italy, where there was, uh, you know, a a serious rise in cases. And and since then, it has become overwhelmed um, with a tsunami of of, of cases. But also there had been a lot of um, analysis and observation of what was happening in China, which was obviously the epicentre and where this epidemic first broke out. I mean, it's an interesting point because I think when we had our first case even really in in all of the island of Ireland, I think it was in the north, and then we had the first case in the Republic, as a lot of the health experts had said from the outset, I mean, this was something was going to come to Ireland um, and it was to be expected. And like things have, you know, changed quite considerably um, in that really four week period. Yeah, like what what the health experts often say is, you know, viruses don't know any borders or they, they, they don't obey and they, they don't stick to, to borders. And we've obviously seen some countries, you know, lock down and introduced really, really tight travel restrictions, even in Europe recently. Um, but, you know, since then, there's obviously been many, many more confirmed cases. We've seen a rise in the number of deaths, sadly reported. And we've also seen an increase in the numbers who are in intensive care units. And really, although, you know, we're all following, you know, on a daily basis, the reports that come from Dr. Tony Holohan, the chief medical officer, around the, the, the number of confirmed cases each day, in some ways, the, the, the figures that, that really matter are the um, numbers in intensive care and also, um, obviously, the, the, the number of tragic deaths from COVID-19 because the confirmed cases, you know, there are various studies out there that would suggest that a lot of people um, might be asymptomatic or as in not, not display any symptoms of this. That hasn't been completely confirmed yet, but certainly there are studies suggesting that. And also, we have a big backlog um, in our testing here. We ramped up capacity considerably 
but um, we simply couldn't keep up with demand. So there's likely to be a lot more confirmed or, or there's likely to be a lot more cases out there than the confirmed number would actually suggest. Just on a couple of different points, it might start maybe just with the testing when you mentioned it. I mean, sure. I'm not a health expert or, or, you know, or a health official, but my read of this is that I would assume the figures should rise over the next couple of days, the next week or so to these kind of higher levels that we're starting to see in more recent days due to the fact that we are testing so many people may not necessarily be a bad thing that we're actually getting those people that have the virus off the streets and self-isolating at this point that we don't maybe end up like some of the other European countries. Yeah, well, certainly, you know, um, about a week or 10 days ago, the Taoiseach and others were saying that they feared that we could have 15,000 confirmed cases uh, by the end of March. Now, it doesn't look like we're, we're going to be anywhere near that. Um, and there has been, you know, some positive uh, comments from the chief medical officer, Dr. Tony Holohan, who has said that when they're doing this contact tracing, which is where, you know, if, you, if you're confirmed, you do a test and, and you're confirmed as a positive. They then try to trace anyone that you might have been in contact with to ensure that you haven't spread it um, or ha- haven't infected, I should say, any others, because as we know, this is, a, this is quite an, an infectious uh, virus. Um, and he was saying that since the measures were introduced to try to encourage people to, you know, self-isolate a little bit more and and all of this social distancing, that there's far fewer contacts between um, between those who have been confirmed cases and other people. So that's that's a positive mm-hmm. development, but it's probably too early yet to to know exactly where our numbers are going to go. And the state has done the modelling of our projected numbers. And, you know, they're pretty frightening, the, the, the figures that, that, that came out of that modelling. It hasn't um, been completed uh, and, it, you know, it does change and, and modelling is only modelling. They are projections, but they were projecting that about 40% of the Irish population would be infected. That sounds huge, but when you consider that over in Germany, Chancellor Merkel um, has said that their projections estimate that about 70% of the German population could be infected. You can see that we're we're not really an outlier. Uh, But right now, our numbers, you know, don't appear to be as bad as we had expected. And this is obviously only just, you know, a snapshot in time when we're actually recording and talking today and, and, and carrying out this interview. But I thought it was really interesting to look at various different stages in the past couple of days at the um, the graph during the daily briefing at the Department of Health, where yeah. they show you, you know, where we are. And, and even with um, the number of fatalities that we've had and the number of cases, I mean, it's it's just so striking to see that we're we're not even on the incline of the graph yet. No, we're really just just starting out. Um, and the figures are hard to get your head around sometimes. Tony O'Brien, the former health service chief, did a piece um, for us in the Business Post last weekend. And he was saying, so this is almost like compound interest, the way in which the numbers or the cases, the confirmed cases grow. And he was saying that if, um, for example, there was a 20% rise in cases each day, um, we were looking at about 60,000 cases um, after four weeks. But if that was a 30% rise each day, as it has been in countries like Italy, and we've seen that in Spain too um, over the past week or 10 days, then we're looking at numbers in the order of half a million. So it's incredible how this can can progress. But it's also you know, important to say that clearly we can all have a huge impact 
on how that how that graph or how that line grows. And obviously, I suppose the aim of, of um, health service management and officials is to try to flatten this curve, this phrase that we've all heard so much mm-hmm. of over the past week. So that that's really so that the health service itself isn't hit by an absolute tsunami of cases because that is what has overwhelmed hospitals in northern Italy and Spain. In terms of the approach that's been taken um, by the health officials and by the government in terms of the kind of measures that have been introduced, Susan, even at this point, I mean, as somebody that's sort of commentating in in the health sector for quite a period of time, um, how do you think the message is getting across? I think that their messaging has been has been pretty good, actually. Um, I think it's been really consistent. I think the messaging from the government um, and indeed from the Department of Health and the Health Service has has been very good. Uh, the only thing, you know, if, if I had to, and, and it's easy to to comment and criticise as a as an armchair analyst, which which is what I am. I'm not I'm not in the trenches. Um, I'm not battling this. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not experiencing the level of stresses that they are. I think they probably um, made a mistake in respect of their comments on personal protective equipment for healthcare staff because we've seen the health service executive repeatedly say that it had adequate supplies and adequate stock of gear for staff when in actual fact that was just not true. Um, doctors, nurses and other healthcare staff are crying out for um, protective equipment. We've seen some of them taking to Twitter uh, trying to trying to find any kind of source that they possibly can, but generally speaking, I think their messaging has been has been good and very strong, certainly in respect of what they've been saying to the public. I think more protective equipment and and gear is due to arrive in the country over the course of of the weekend as well. Yeah, it is. So um, there's, which is a, a a positive story and a positive development. Aer Lingus pilots are flying over and bringing plane loads of protective gear back from Italy. Uh, but I suppose from from the perspective of doctors, nurses, and others in the health service, um, they, they were told about two weeks ago that that these uh, deliveries were due and they they didn't materialise. So there was a lot of anxiety around wh- when will this actually arrive. And I think there's also anxiety around whether or not it will be sufficient uh, because there is a huge global shortage of this personal protective equipment. We're not the only country having difficulties. Um, You know, over in in America, for example, the Centre for Disease Control has told um, healthcare staff there that if in, in extreme circumstances they can use a bandana to cover their face, um, over okay. in Spain, we have seen nurses having to use bin bags as gowns because they've run short. So there's a huge, huge issue in, in Europe and in the United States right now in, in terms of actually accessing this. One of the things that has struck me is that, you know, when you look at the figures and particularly in some of the other countries, I mean, you mentioned, Susan, the, the US, uh, Italy, for instance, um, even the UK's figures at the moment, you know, France, various, even Spain as well, incredible figures there throughout the course of the week. And yet it's so simplistic in that people are being asked to just stay away from people and wash their hands. I mean, it, it nearly seems so incredible to think that the cure for this and well, the, the cure in terms of slowing down the number of cases is just as simple as that. Um, that's well. It's it's certainly a, a way to limit the spread, um, and that has been the, the the kind of the messaging consistently. And I think we saw that, you know, from from the get go over in China. Um, China dealt with, you know, a, a, after a, a period in which they were slow to 
to to say that the, that that there was an issue when when they told the World Health Organization that there was an issue that they had a problem in Wuhan. They moved mountains, really, in, in, in China, and they showed what you can do when society and indeed the regime or government um, really pushes uh, society and people to start isolating, to, you know, maintain physical distance. And I say physical as opposed to social, because I think that's, that's the phrase that we're, we're supposed to use now. But that these things can have a dramatic impact on the spread of the virus. And if you look at China, China um, now, I mean, it has, about, has recorded over 80,000 uh, confirmed cases. But in recent days and weeks, any of the cases that have been confirmed in China are cases that have been imported from overseas. So in other words, people traveling back from abroad, because within China, there's actually virtually no community spread. In other words, within China, people aren't um, infecting or passing this virus on to each other. It tends to be people traveling back from countries with outbreaks. Mm. And and that kind of leads me to my next question. I mean, when we look at the additional um, measures that we had, restrictive measures announced here in the Republic of Ireland earlier this week, I mean, it would sort of lead you to ask the question, why do we not just implement what China did for a four or five week period? Um, I mean, they're already coming out the other side of this. So there's a lot of people asking asking that question. And though China does appear to be coming out the other side, um, if, if you talk to epidemiologists and, and others, they will say, look, let's just see what happens in China, because as you ease the restrictions, there is fear that there could be a second wave of cases. And already that's something that is being um, mooted. And there, there are concerns that this might might be happening in places like Hong Kong. So though they appear to have had great initial success, it's unclear whether that's going to be, you know, that, that's going to deliver in, in, into the long term. But I think the other, the other thing to remember about China is it's a, an entirely different regime to what we have here. Um, so in China, for example, uh, people were taken from their homes if they had the virus put into these quarantine camps. Um, they've also used, you know, I suppose apps to track people and see what happened, you know, and, and track their contacts, things that, you know, more liberal democracies might might find challenging. Um, so they had, you know, the, the measures introduced there were, were a lot more draconian than they have been anywhere else. But even, you know, if you look at, at South Korea, South Korea has also done a, a, a really great job at suppressing um, the rise in cases. But it, too, uses a mobile app to track anyone um, who has been infected so that you can access, so that the um, health authorities can access their contacts. You know, all of these things are things that are probably alien to us mm. in, um, in Western um, liberal democracies. But, you know, there are a lot of people behind the scenes questioning whether we should maybe be moving in that direction. Just finally, Susan, I mean, it's it's we are at such such early stages of this pandemic here in the country. But I mean, I know it's a very simple question, but it's the one everyone's asking is when will this all end? <laughs> God, that is a million dollar question. Um it's hard to know because we don't know whether or not there will be a seasonal element to this yet. Um, the scientists and, and experts don't know that yet. But uh, some people are saying three months, others are saying six months. 
um, over in Germany. They were saying that there might be some restrictive measures for up to two years. But it also probably hinges on when we when and if we get a vaccine. So, for example, if this is something that doesn't disappear and, you know, continues to spread or even if it's a cyclical thing and comes back in in the winter time again, if we manage to suppress it uh, before, you know, over the summer, um, you know, a vaccine could obviously deliver, you know, widespread um, hope across the world. But unfortunately, um, most experts estimate and the widespread consensus is that we're 12 to 18 months away before a vaccine actually hits the market. Susan Mitchell, the um, health editor with the Business Post, my thanks to you for joining us on the programme today. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. If you've missed any of the programme, you can download our podcast on our website or on the Go Loud app. My thanks to the production team, as always, Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from 6. I'm between the lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. 